Yeah, Vaughn? Dat but dat dat but bop dot but bot dot but dot dot that's a <laughs> abrupt ending herb welcome to two twins and an album uh for episode this 15 i believe it is tonight i'm really excited to talk about this band we are going to be talking about the debut album from the band sahara um Sahara, a great band out of the eighties. Um, oh, they're not called Sahara, but it says Sahara on the album cover. It does say it. Hmm. It's almost like they wanted to be named that so badly that they still left it on the cover. You know what? I just did some quick research and you're absolutely right. Just in that, that three seconds, I did some, some research and, uh, they originally wanted to be called Sahara and instead they ended up going with the last name of a fairly important member of the band, but they still put the word Sahara in the bottom, right? Almost as if to say part of us maybe wishes this was our band name, but instead we're going to go with, and I assume that they didn't want to go with um, Charles Frederick Kip winger because that's two that's four words that's a little long right so they decided to just go with winger on this episode we are going to be talking about the debut album from i don't know if this is a statement or a question i guess it'll be perhaps both but i'll pose to you maybe the most misunderstood most unfairly treated band in the history of rock music it's probably the only thing, I mean, the only thing that I really don't like about Beavis and Butthead, which I just, I think <laughs> is like the most brilliant show ever, right? Like completely created by this genius, Mike Judge. But the one thing I really despise about Beavis and Butthead is that it ruined this band. Yeah, Mike Judge has a batting average of like, 998 and pretty much the one thing he's gotten wrong and we'll talk about it a bit is Stewart. I think yeah, I think unknowingly and unintentionally getting winger into on the wrong side of pop culture at that time. But before we get into the wrong side, the right side of pop culture and everything from MTV cartoons to ballet symphony compositions and everything in between. Let's go ahead and take this bad boy round and round.
Snubs, what have you been listening to, Goodman? Well, as you know, most new albums I buy are new albums, but from, how shall we say, veteran artists. So in other words, you like old man music. (laughs) There's no doubt about it, yes. The new album by Kansas called The Absence of Presence Yes, great continues, band. Yeah, it, it continues a pretty stellar two-album run with their new lead singer, a.k.a. not Steve Walsh. It's a fantastic record. It, and, and the one before it was, was excellent as well. So they're just kind of on fire right now. And The Absence of Presence, which came out sometime last year. It was actually just a couple months ago. Was it? Okay. All right. More recent. So, but their other one, which is called the prelude implicit, I think was their first one with this new singer. And that one was fantastic. So I haven't dug into this yet, but it's, it's pretty good. Yes. Yeah. It's a lot like the last one. Very, very proggy and uh, really ambitious, but it sounds super fresh for a band that's been around for decades. It still has a really fresh sound. I think, you know, it's a great example of how a new singer can sometimes just take a veteran band and, uh, and inject a little life into it. So definitely been digging that album for sure. Uh, listening to Little Queen by Heart, a great album per se, but it does have Barracuda on it. And anything that Ann Wilson lends her uh, superb vocals to is worth the time. And I've made no, uh, I've made no mystery over my fairly deep and genuine heartfelt love for Nancy Wilson, one of the all time rock and roll hotties. Oh yeah. My opinion. Well, even Anne, I mean, come on, you know? Oh yeah. In her day. I mean, what an amazing pair of sisters just with that much like complete rock and roll talent and energy. Heart's an awesome band. So little queen I've been digging and uh, also Ario Speedwagon's high infidelity. Which isn't my favorite REO album, but it's got, you know, a nice collection of hits on it and pretty trademark sound to it. And, uh, you know, I'm kind of getting towards the end of the summer and trying to get all my 80s rock kind of stuff out of the system so I can get back into more of the metal zone come winter. Yes, your winter is coming for nubs means that metal is coming. You got it. Exactly. Exactly. T, what is round and round for you right now? Well, vouch for me, you know, I think many of our listeners know that we can see each other during this. And I don't know if you've noticed, but I've been holding this piece of paper up the whole time just because I wanted to prove to you. I'm going to hold this up. Can you see what my first selection is on round and round that I wrote down? Yes, it says Kansas Live Whiskey. So pretty unbelievable. And again, we don't trade we should probably trade more information than we do prior to these, but we, we don't trade much. Certainly not around and around picks. And the fact that both of us picked the band Kansas is pretty amazing. Now, this is a different era. Obviously, this was with uh, Steve Walsh on lead vocals and um, kind of during this kind of comeback that they were making at the time. Um, it was 92, right? Was it 1992? When that yeah, was- it was probably, yeah, probably early, early 90s is the best way to put it. And they started, you know, touring summers and, and headlining and, you know, pulling in some pretty good crowds. And then obviously it was really the onset of when you started to see a lot of those classic rock bands start to pair up. So Sticks and REO and Kansas and 
foreigner and you know all that fun stuff of which we enjoyed a lot of those shows but we actually saw kansas on this tour it was one of our first concerts going you know back a bit i actually bought the cd at the concert i remember you did yeah Yeah. Yeah. and really liked it and have liked it ever since it's a it's a disc that i typically don't go too long without you know revisiting so a good live one there by uh a band that we both unknowingly picked uh for round and round did you ever hear uh joey ramone's take on the bands that you listed you know that genre of bands that you listed out you mean when he when he said uh you know like boston and <laughs> Foeno and all that crap yeah, 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 that, yeah. That, is that what you're talking about completely he goes <laughs> we hated all that crap boston kansas Foeno. we hated that crap <laughs> was was that like a behind the music or something yeah you know it was like an mtv interview and the hair's all up in his face and you can hardly put together a sentence, but, but he made clear that he hated all those bands. And I'm sitting there thinking, man, I love all these bands. What's wrong with you, Joey? Yeah, exactly. So second pick is uh, my morning jacket, who is a band that I think is sort of gotten worse over time, but their early stuff. I really like particularly their first couple albums. And I picked Z, which was, I, I think their second, studio album and and really good you know really got kind of the the reverby atmospheric sound right and some really really good songs they went on to make evil urges which was pretty good and then i think every album's gotten a little bit steadily worse since then but been revisiting um early 2000s uh effort from at the time who i would consider a really good band and one that has kind of gotten away from what they are since and then the third is actually it's actually a box set. I don't know if this is allowed on the old podcast here, but I'm just going to do me, it anyway. Let me check with the judges. Okay, it's allowed. Oh, okay, yeah, thanks, buddy. Allowed. Yeah, I, good check. Good check. Um, and this is the uh, Def Jam Records box set. Now, to your point about seasonality, as we sort of get from summer to fall, uh, we start doing a lot of uh, tailgating you know, and some outdoor fun as far as uh, games and maybe the uh, occasional frothy beverage or two. And, and uh, my neighborhood, uh, we, we really, one of the things we all have in common is a real love for some of this kind of old school rap type genre. So this was the 10th year anniversary Def Jam box set, which I got at that time and has just a lot of great, let's say probably very, very late seventies, certainly all through the 80s and through the early 90s collection of Def Jam stuff. So the old LL Cool J, the, you know, old Beastie Boys, the stuff from EPMD and, you know, Domino and uh, Orange Juice Jones, you know, just to name another. So, (laughs) so um, really been enjoying a lot of that old uh, Def Jam stuff from a genre and an era that uh, I really quite enjoy. So that is what's round and round for me. So I was being a little bit of a goofball at the beginning and saying that the band we were talking about is Sahara, but it is indeed Winger. The unquestionable progressive metal band from the 80s. Progressive. And I think a lot of people, when they think of Winger, particularly those that 
haven't spent a lot of time either listening to them or giving them a fair chance, however you want to put it, probably wouldn't use that word. But all you have to do is dig into their work and you can pick any point in their career, which is still going on today. You know, this was their debut album. And at a time where a lot of this glam rock, hair metal, hair bands, you know, whatever you want to call it, which certainly there was an element of that to these guys, um, was really not going in a terribly complex or progressive direction. In a lot of ways, again, this misunderstood, somewhat unfairly treated band comes out with the lead single on this record and it becomes a bit anthemic. It's a huge hit, obviously, but one that, you know, I think reached more of a sort of tongue in cheek metal audience that then sort of didn't know what to expect from these guys. And I really do feel this band to be terribly misunderstood. Um, Do you agree with that, Nub? Absolutely. I think it's the perfect word, you know, completely misunderstood. I think that a lot of people went with the MTV version of the band, maybe paid attention to a three minute video, maybe a poster on the wall of Kip Winger or or something else that just really misrepresented what this band really was just in terms of a musical outfit. Amazing musicians just never quite found their place in a very strange industry. When you look at hard rock, heavy metal, right around the time of this album. You know, things didn't make a lot of sense in the late 80s and early 90s for these types of bands. And think about it, within a few years of of this album, you've got Nirvana and Pearl Jam and Soundgarden and and bands that took, you know, harder edge music in a totally different direction, much more organic. I'm sure that if Kip Winger could go back and do it all over again, he would have made some different decisions about the image of the band and some of the things that led to this. Anyone who's ever heard Kip Winger has got a great sense of humor, is very wise, very smart guy, and has a great perspective on the whole thing. But unfortunately, this album isn't respected enough as an album because I think of you know, kind of the celebrity that he became and, and the way that the band was cornered into a genre that it really never should have been part of. So very misunderstood, no doubt about it. And it'll be fun for the next little while to really give this album some of the the respect that it deserves. Well, let's do just that. And let's start with the nerd deets done dark cheap. Winger was released on August 10th, 1988. And as previously mentioned, you know, the music scene at this time really was still dominated by glam hair metal, very heavily driven by MTV, very heavily driven by rock radio. But, you know, those that actually dug into this record beyond just the lead singles knew they were getting something unique. Winger is probably a band that musicians view much differently now than they probably did at the time, or certainly give them more of a chance than they may have at the time. So it's an album that you fast forward now 32 years. It really doesn't get a lot of critical review or critical acclaim, which to your point is the beauty of the old podcast here where we can dust off an album like this. You talk about the members of Winger a little bit. And as you earlier said, Nubs, incredible musicianship. And 
we might as well start with Kip because Kip Winger's musical story is really pretty amazing. It is terribly underrated, almost frustrating to think that most people probably lack a real deep understanding of everything that Kip has explored during his career and executed during his career beyond just Winger. We're talking about a guy with a ballet background who actually learned a lot of his musical chops from a lot of that classical ballet style symphony music that he came to really dig into and understand at a very young age. He grew up in Colorado and really kind of got into classical music first and foremost, and then clearly expanded his horizons to dig into what has been a kind of multi-instrumentalist career with Winger and beyond. I think one of the things that's really notable about Kip is obviously just a few years ago, he released his first full symphony called Conversations with Nijinsky. I think I'm saying that right. A, you know, ballet themed tribute project to a composer that influenced him at a young age. This guy wrote an entire symphony and released it. And if you haven't heard it, it's certainly worth the listen. And I think you can tell that this is a guy that really knows what he's doing beyond just the guy who sang and wrote 17. Tremendously talented, multi-instrumentalist, great singer, great 12-string guitar player. I've been following Kip Winger for a long time, and a couple times I've been able to go see him solo, acoustic, and he just he plays a 12-string guitar and just sounds incredible. It really shows just how gifted he is. And I think what's really cool about Kip is that he never became like bitter about any of the experiences in the music business. You know, he's, he's always at a very level head, like I said earlier, kind of a, a good wit about his experiences. M- music is his life. You know, it's his life. It's his true passion. It's his undeniable talent. And he's kind of remained steadfast about that through a lot of ups and downs in his career. But if you really just dive into him as an artist, I mean, he, he's, he's really amazing. He really is. He's got, He's got great vision, great talent. And when he puts it all together, it's about as good as it gets. And you make a great point about his personality. I mean, and you mentioned the Beavis and Butthead thing earlier. One of the things that's interesting when you kind of dig back into that story, Mike Judge had at the time had heard, or maybe this was through a publicist or whoever, that Kip was really angry about the character Stuart wearing the winger shirt. And Apparently, Mike Judge, you know, who was a 90s whippersnapper creating this, you know, boundary pushing show and platform that was Beavis and Butthead, which was brilliant. Apparently, you know, he had heard that this really made Kip angry. And at the time, it kind of enticed him to do this more. And what's really a shame is that that actually never happened. Kip always thought it was funny. He never took the Winger Project too seriously, even in 1988. You know, if you go back, the beauty of YouTube now, you can go back and watch a lot of, and the band always really did a good job of capturing studio recording and touring. There's a lot of video out there of this band. And even back then in their heyday, when they were, you know, dressing the part and looking the part in their videos and all that, you can tell that these were very intelligent guys that didn't take themselves or their band too seriously whatsoever. And Mike Judge has since kind of said, well, I feel kind of bad now because I've learned that 
Kip actually thought this was funny. And at the time I would have, you know, respected that. So, you know, all's well that ends well, but certainly um, it's a band that kind of got cornered into a little bit of a bad rep, unfortunately, around that time. And as silly as it sounds, you know, that that cartoon really did have a lot to do with that. So when Kip was um, playing in Alice Cooper's band, he played the bass for Alice Cooper's band. Um, he became, you know, pretty tight with the keyboardist of Alice Cooper's band, a guy named Paul Taylor. This was really kind of the initial connection point that would eventually become Sahara, which would obviously become Winger. And Paul Taylor, uh, a very, very skilled keyboardist, uh, had certainly a musical and personality connection with Kip, and uh, they decided to kind of go at it. What really defines Paul Taylor's impact on Winger are the ballads. And we're going to get to one very important one on this record, as well as another one that would become very important on the next record for the band, heavily influenced from a composition and execution standpoint by Paul Taylor. And obviously his keyboard work provided a really uh, important layer to this debut album and really to the band's sound going forward. He kind of has been in and out of the band ever since. And and sometimes he goes on the tour with them and sometimes he doesn't. So he's still involved. And I think he still um, has a soft spot for the project. Yeah. You don't become a member of Alice Cooper's backing band without being quite good at what you do. There's a long list of kind of Alice Cooper alumni that have gone on to be in other bands or start their own bands. And so for Paul Taylor to have that experience just immediately speaks credibility. And what he brought musically to Winger made the band very, very distinct to your point versus some of their peers. And you hear that more in the album tracks than maybe the the hits or the songs that were intended to be hits. So you kind of appreciate Paul Taylor more as you get deeper into the albums. But yeah, his importance to the band is is immense. I mean, he really brought some things to the table that created a sound that was very distinct from the other, you know, hard rock and heavy metal things going on in the late eighties. Rod Morgenstein, the drummer, the lefty, um, nubs, the, the resident drummer here, of course, I'll turn this one over to you a little bit, but obviously it, it sure seems like a lot of the elements as far as touch and timing and a lot of these kind of proggy uh, influences on the band. Um, Rod really drives a lot of that. Uh, is that fair from a uh, drummer's perspective? Listen, dude was in the Dixie Dregs. Like, what more do you need to know? <laughs> it's like, enough said. Because like, who else was in the Dixie Dregs? Oh yeah, Steve Morse. He's pretty good, you know? Uh, <laughs> so what more do you got to say? Dude was the drummer for the Dregs, you know, that goes a long way. So yeah, great rhythm, great feel, left-handed, which, you know, undeniably cool. Uh, Rod Morgenstein, perfect drummer for this band. Perfect amount of prog, big sound, plays hard, all the things that you like to see a drummer do, and good showman, too. You know, he's, he's a fun guy to watch play and runs out this band from a rhythmic perspective incredibly well. Well, I just wish the band had another showman. So that's it. That's those three guys. Yeah, um, yeah. And... Uh, you know, it's uh, it's a pretty good band. Um, I don't think it's I don't think I'm missing anything terribly important. So maybe we should move. Oh, oh wait, Reb Beach. I almost forgot him. Reb, 
Um, I would never forget Red Beach because he is probably a top five guitarist for moi as far as the guitar god hot list. Have loved Red Beach as playing and have certainly learned more and more about his ability to compose and contribute, which he does heavily to this band. A guy who studied music at Berkeley. Uh, a guy who has also played with a couple of other bands that were decent. Dokken is one and White Snake is another. So incredibly accomplished. But Winger would in no way even close, even as talented and incredible as Kip is, and certainly the contributions from the other guys, Winger would not be Winger if it weren't for Red Beach. Just one of the great shredders of all time, but also a terrific rhythm player, high quality songwriter, by all accounts, a really, really great collaborator. You know, obviously him and Kip have had something going now for decades and the two have, have seemed to be kind of these musical soulmates that can't quite get away from each other. (laughs) Again, you know, look at the other qualifications that these guys have in terms of other bands. He's a guitarist for Whitesnake. That's like one of the ultimate plaques that a guitarist can have on their wall is that you played with David Coverdale and Whitesnake, you know, and I don't know if you've ever seen Whitesnake with Reb and the band, but I mean, it's, I haven't, I know you oh, have, I mean, it, you know, he's great with winger. He might be even better with Whitesnake just because of, you know, you got two guitarists in the band and he just gets to do a lot of really incredible playing. So yeah, I, you know, which member of, Winger is most important. Well, you know, they're all super important. Obviously, Kip is vital, but Red brings something to the table that's really special. He's not too far behind, that's for sure. And an innovative player. I mean, his finger tap method was in a lot of ways and with a lot of moves and a lot of execution, things you hadn't seen before. Can we also just acknowledge amazing hair? Oh, I mean, the guy you looks watch, great. Yeah. If you watch his, his guitar. So a lot of the guys at this time were putting out guitar videos, you know, that, that have become pretty legendary and Red Beach put out one called cut and loose. And he, you know, he tries to like show you how he get all this stuff that like you could never do yourself, you know? And, uh, the, the, the perm and the hair flow in this cut and loose uh, guitar instructional video is just uh, almost as amazing as his playing. You know, maybe it was part of the curse of the band that, that they all looked great. I mean, let's let one thing you can't discount <laughs> is Kip Winger as just sort of an eighties, like sex symbol. You know I mean? The chicks loved him and Reb looked great. And uh, I mean, it was, it was like a really good looking band too. So they were almost cursed with this pinup kind of image when really they were all kind of masterclass musicians at the same time. Indeed. One thing really quick, Kip Winger, when he was young, growing up and getting into classical, actually put together his first sort of composition. And he decided to send it to one of his big musical influences at the time, a guy named Alan Parsons. Alan Parsons received this tape, listened to it, and actually replied to this young guy named Kip Winger and said, Hey, you know, this is really good. Stick with it, kid. You know, sounds like you got some talent. And then 30 years later, Kip Winger joined the Alan Parsons project as the lead vocalist. And he actually referenced the letter that he had sent him as a young child. So, you know, a story that's pretty cool as far as 
reaching out and connecting with one of your influences. And then you never know, you might just get to play in their band someday if you stick with it. Let's get to the old wonder stories. Nubs laying on us. How did you uh, get into winger? Uh, our mom was, you know, developed a uh, <laughs> fondness for Kip Winger. I don't know if she was fond of the band Winger as much as her actually being fond of just Kip. I don't even know if she knew he was in a band. Yeah, she's, she certainly didn't, uh, <laughs> didn't care that he spent most of the 17 video actually not playing bass. It was, it was uh, Kip Winger and Rick Springfield were uh, her favorites if i remember correctly with a little duran duran sprinkled in if i remember right but uh yeah so our mom bought the winger album probably just as much for the uh picture on the back of the sleeve as the music <laughs> itself and so there was this sort of thing and then the beavis and butthead thing sort of happened and uh i really discovered winger in college so I, I went to the Ohio State University in Columbus, Ohio is a great record store town. There's like five or six just fabulous independent owned record shops. And they're and, pretty good at football too, from what I understand. Yeah, not too shabby, not too shabby. And these record shops, I mean, I would literally go every day, you know, because it was like, oh, I'm like, on my own and free. And I could actually go to the record store every day if I want to. And I did CDs were becoming a little lower in value. So there was this, this place called CD warehouse, which I think was a chain. There were several of them around the country and they used to sell like $2 CDs. And one day I was at CD warehouse and they had a copy of in the heart of the young and pull the two winger albums that came after the one we're talking about in this episode mm -hmm. for sale for like two bucks each. And I remember Pole because, you know, owned it when we were young and I really liked Down Incognito. And I, you know, I remember having, you know, good feelings about that album. So I bought that to, to rediscover it. And then didn't know a whole lot about In the Heart of the Young, but bought it just because yeah, it's, it's two bucks, you know, and, and spent a lot of time listening to those immediately. You know, it, it was kind of like in my CD player for, you know, the ensuing several months. And listening to the albums top to bottom and really appreciating them. Well, then I got into Kip's solo albums. So at around this time, he put out an album called This Conversation Seems Like a Dream. Maybe it's, this conversation feels like a dream, something like that. And it was a reflection of um, he, he lost his wife in like a, in a car accident, I think. Yeah. You know, sometime in the late 90s. And he wrote an entire album about it. Very powerful album and very deep. And, and just, you know like everything he does just, you know, outstanding musical composition. And this, this phase in college, I just really got into all things winger and Kip winger. And that's when I saw him solo for the first time. This was years before he decided to reform the band and record the four album. And, uh, but he was touring solo and I went and saw him with, you know, 12 other people in Columbus at some small bar. And he you know played acoustic and played a bunch of, winger songs and things like that. And it was just, it was just fantastic. You know, it was like, wow, this guy is just so good. And, um, and, and it never really quit. And then the band got back together and they made the winger four album, which, you know, I loved. 
And then the things they've done since I've, I think I've been great. And so, and you and I've gotten to see them several times since around the area. Um, Love this band, love winger. And you know, anytime they come here and if it's a free night and we're able to make it, I'm sure we're going to get to go see them, you know, because they're that good. They really are that good. What's your wonder story, T? Well, a few things, actually. And it goes back to a few things around this time of this album. And then it gets into a few things that were a bit more recent. So the 17 video, probably my first memory of this band. And I, I think probably the case for most. And you breathed on it a little bit earlier, but even when we were eight years old, we were eight years old when this video came out. I remember just kind of thinking it was a little bit odd, but mostly funny that Kip just holds the bass the whole time. And <laughs> he's basically having sex with his bass guitar. I mean, you could tell that the coaching on this from the directors was, you know, and Kip had like no clothes on, you know, he had like a string, you know, two strings over his chest. And, you know, I mean, <laughs> he was, he was bearing it all for, uh, I guess people like our mom that, you know, I guess let's give the people what they want. And I remember kind of making fun of him. It was like, oh, I bet that guy can't even play. You know, he's probably just, I remember thinking that it was like, he's probably, that's probably just a prop. He's the singer. He's the sex symbol. And uh, boy, I guess we were wrong. He could play a little bit uh, as it turns out. But I remember thinking that that was just really funny. And it was kind of this goofy song anyway, in a way, um, until you realize later what the song really is and we'll, when we'll get to it. But uh, it, it is, it is without question, one of the all time, most ridiculous videos ever made. You know, it's like, oh yeah. It's like, Hey guys, you know, wear as little clothes as possible. We're going to put you under this like purple light and just act like you're having a really great time. Yeah. You know? And and that's actually what they've said. And Kip has obviously, as Kip does, he's made fun of himself about not really playing the instrument in the video and all that stuff. And he said, the directors just said, you know, have fun. Don't worry about playing. And that's pretty evident, but we always used to get, even, even at age eight, I remember we would get a good laugh uh, about uh, Kip not playing his instrument during the video. There was another thing you and I were on a, we were on a golf trip down in Ohio uh, a few years back and we kind of spur of the moment saw that winger was playing. You're going to have to refresh my memory. It was some indoor, it was like a, monster truck i don't know what a, do you remember what the venue was it was a very strange venue so the town is is versailles ohio it's spelled like versailles that's french you know that's french you know it's a very small town the venue was an indoor track it was like a, a yeah. track that you could do various things around including you know, you could do like dirt bikes and you could do go-karts. Yeah. It was, was kind of like, like a, a, it was a little speedway. Almost. Yeah. Yeah. Indoors. It was this yeah. multi-purpose racetrack and it was very, it was very odd. Um, but we saw that winger was playing and I remember we kind of hopped in a car and drove an hour and a half or whatever it was from where we were, which was up near Columbus. We showed up, they played a great set. It was, it was a very unique concert going experience. And then I remember too, one other thing before we get to kind of the, the closing story here is you kind of dragged me kicking and screaming to a Kip solo show at Harpo's in Detroit. 
This is probably early 2000s, I would guess. And I remember thinking, uh, I mean, I love Red Beach and I love the band. Do I really want to go see Kip by himself? And, you know, okay. And it was one of those deals you kind of promised me, like, you're going to like this. Just, just, you know, have some faith. And it was Kip and a 12 string. And I was blown away by how good of a guitar player he was. I had no idea he could play a guitar like that. And how great his vocals are live. I mean, Kip is a, you know, he is a trained vocalist. You know, he's not one of these hair metal guys that goes out there and screams and yells at a high pitch level and can't, I mean, he is singing, you know, he is bringing it up from the right spot. He has amazing vibrato. He is a really, really good vocalist. And that was certainly a moment that got me more dug into these guys um, and more dug into really a lot of Kip's work. And that's where the light bulb kind of went on for me as far as this Kip Winger guy really being a uh, substantial accomplished musician. So the last wonder story here is we'll take you back to December 29th, 2018 and Winger was playing at the token lounge in Westland, Michigan and Nubs and I were at the show. And we were having a nice time. And, you know, we had had a couple of frothy beverages during the winger set and they played a real good set top to bottom. I remember they played a couple of um, certainly uh, both of our favorite tracks. And then they announced that they were playing their final song of the night. And they typically bring up somebody from the audience to uh, play a uh, song with them. And so they ask if anybody in the audience plays bass and uh, you know, we just kind of look at each other and laugh and, you know, cause actually we've our band, we've played at the token lounge before. So, you know, I wasn't jumping up and down, you know, waving my arms cause I'm like dying to get on stage so bad, but it was just kind of cool. It was like, Oh, they're going to bring someone up on stage. Nice. You know? And I don't know if you remember this part, but they brought up a guy who was absolutely bombed i mean he was like out of his mind hammered and he got up on stage and they put the bass on him and he could hardly stand up straight i mean it's like there's no way this guy's gonna be able to do this yeah so they actually had to take the bass off of him and uh you know i I don't i think they kind of said well anyone else want to give it a try and and i remember you and i kind of looked at each other and it was like Oh man, like, I think I have to go do this, you know? So I just happened to wave my arm in the right way. And I got Kip's attention from about 10 rows out. And I remember he pointed at me and said, you know how to play? And I was like, yep, let's go. So I kind of weaved my way up into the front and hopped on the stage. And my wonderful elder twin brother was enough of a saint, a thoughtful saint to capture this on video maybe i should put it up on twitter um on our twitter page so uh oh you have to you have to but uh you you god bless you you got out the uh camera phone and got the whole thing on video and i got up there and uh we played ain't talking about love the old van halen song which is kind of their closer which is an a and a g and a couple of e's it's really easy you know but I got the opportunity to jam on stage with this band and it was just the coolest thing ever. So, and I'm playing Kip's bass, 
know, that black bass of his, I'm, I'm sitting there playing with it. I mean, it was just so cool. So we finished the song and, you know, and I was like trying to, you know, yell stuff in the guy's ears as we were wrapping up. And I remember the, the guys were kind of walking off the stage and I was like, well, I mean, where do I go? You know, <laughs> there, there was nobody really pointing me in any direction. I just went with them. So I just walked off the stage with winger, with the guys, you know, my new buddies. And I just sort of sidled up next to him and it was like, all right. And I just hung out with him for like five minutes, you know, and talked about their, their most recent album. And I talked with Reb about the guitar solo he did on this wonderful song of theirs called witness. And, you know, told him that I thought it was one of his best solos and told him that his guitar playing has had a big influence. I mean, he just couldn't have been a nicer guy. I got two pictures with the, with the band and they were just, the coolest dudes, um, it was a really special thing for, for me and certainly for, for both of us to, um, be there during it. And I'm really glad you got on video and it's really, uh, it's obviously a really special, cool story about this band and, and one of the concerts that we, uh, that we went to. Yeah, it was awesome. It was such a, it was such a great night. And a, and a really, you know, fun show. I mean, we had a blast. Even if you hadn't ended up on stage with the band, we still would have had a really fun night. But yeah, that was that was something else, man. And uh and, and your playing was great too. I do remember that. It was like, man, he's just nailing it. And you could see the band <laughs> kind of like realize, oh, this guy like actually can play. And by the end of it, you guys were just playing like a band. I mean, it was, yeah. it was really memorable. It was awesome. Yeah, I remember getting up there with Rod and kind of getting locked in with him and then you know, going and standing over by Reb. I mean, I was kind of working my way around because I wanted to, you know, stand next to all the guys. Part of the fun was kind of seeing them realize like, oh, this guy ain't so bad, you know, probably compared to some of the other bozos they pull up on stage from time to time. So very cool story. Why don't we uh, dig into it here and uh, let's get into the track by track on Winger's debut album. Let's drop the needle. This is in many ways a composer's album. We've talked often about the pre-chorus here on the podcast in several episodes. And boy, is this a pre-chorus album. Almost every song. And that gets started right away here with a song that was one of the first songs that Kip and Reb wrote together based on some of Reb Beach's riffs that he created at a very young age, apparently and knew that there would be a day where these would all work themselves into a song. And you get that on the debut album on track one with Madeline. get it all here you know you get reb with a really melodic open chord picking melody you get kip coming in with those unmistakable vocals a really great song with i'm gonna say this many times tonight but a really really strong pre-chorus that takes you into a great hook and a great solo and top to bottom a very fitting opening for this record 
pretty simple riffs. It's it's not uh, it's not a surprise that some of these came out of Reb's early days because the riffing here is rather primitive. The lyrics, of course, are ridiculous, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's you know, when when uh, Kip kind of starts with the "Tell you about this lady," you know, it's just like, I mean, you're not you're not too far into the intelligence spectrum when you're diving into these lyrics, but yeah, there probably won't be a lot of um, lyrical you know, really digging into the lyrics as a complex, intriguing part of this album tonight. I think that's fair to say. Yeah. I mean, like Dylan fans are not going to get into winger for the storytelling, you know, (laughs) but uh, you kind of get that sense of adventure right off the bat, rhythmic adventure in 1988, when you intro an album with harmonizing acoustic guitars, you know, some good is going to happen there. And the musicianship is on display right off the bat. I've always saw this as a, an opener that grabs your attention and does all the things that an opener should do all with a, you know, relatively complex musical structure for its time. You know, you compare this to some of the other kind of metal stuff that was going on in the LA scene and things like that in the late eighties. And right away, you see, this is something completely different uh, in a good way. I remember Kip did a version of this at the 12 string, you know, solo acoustic show we were at and he had the audience sing the background part on the chorus and you sing it a few times in the audience and you're like, wow, this is really a cool part. You know, I mean, it's one of those deals you listen to it and you know, he screams Madeline and then you hear that "Ah," and you just listen to it. But then when you actually sing it and you hear it all pieced together, You know, you really get an understanding of how really cool and melodic um, some of these progressions and some of these parts are. And it's a really cool chorus. And I think mostly for that reason. That's a very important melody in the song. And and you're right. I do remember that because he he was humorously trying to get everyone to sing this line. And it, you know, I I would say that we did a a C plus job of it as a crowd. But, you know, someone got to write all those parts and it, it speaks to his kind of orchestra sensibility. The fact that he could write all these complimenting parts for just a basic rock song, you know, it shows you the potential that was there. Well, you couldn't have segued track two any better when it comes to orchestral thought, when it comes to complex composition and those type of things. I don't think there were a lot of quote unquote hair metal bands that at this time were composing a vocal over orchestra section to open track two of their song, but that's exactly what they did here in really demonstrating this talent and this ability to provide a little something different, certainly with this classical backdrop uh, in track two, Hungry. Man, that's just dirty. Just going from really a beautiful intro. I mean, if you really, to your point, someone's got to write this stuff. That vocal melody over that sort of orchestration that is beneath it is really intricate stuff. You know, that's not like put a string quartet underneath it and have it mimic 
what you're about to get as far as the main progression of the song. That was a very unique intro to a song at a prime spot on an album. Track two during this time was always kind of reserved for your more traditional single. And to come out of the gate on that track in that style and in that fashion showed people, or at least should have showed people, that they were getting something a little different here. It's very Eleanor Rigby, if you think about it. You know, it comes in with the vocals and the strings basically at the same time on the one. And it kind of hits you over the head, just like Eleanor Rigby did as a track two on Revolver, right? You you kind of like, whoa, like this is, like you said, something really unique. And uh, it goes into a chorus that I I think left a little bit to be desired. I've never been super in love with the chorus of Hungry. But the, um, the verses after the drums come in, you really see what Morgenstein's doing, the way the kick drum connects with the guitar and bass part, everything's super locked in. You know, earlier you used, you used the term progressive metal. I mean, it's a great example of a prog metal song wrapped up in a commercial viability, right? I mean, this Hungry was a single. It was one of, what, four or five singles off this album. So, and it wasn't a huge hit, but there was a video for it. And, you know, it got some airplay. But, uh, well, you know, with that pre-chorus also in between, which is probably, as we'll say a few times tonight, probably the best section of that song. Yeah, no doubt about it. So a misunderstood band that I think really executes here, lyrics aside, a rather misunderstood song musically. So the lyrics are ridiculous as they are in most of this album and as they were during for most of these types of bands in the eighties. But if you really listen to what's going on here in track three, as far as the guitar part, the intricacy of the drums, interesting timing and overlap notes and overlap beats and those type of things that are taking place here. You get a sense for why this song became a hit. And it wasn't just because of the gimmicky lyrics. This is really something cool musically and a lot more complex than people think on its face with 17. That guitar part is very difficult to just play anyway, and it's extremely difficult to play well. So I don't want to bore everyone too much with technique, but part of what you need to do on that song as far as down picking and up picking and creating that percussiveness that makes it sort of groovy, it's difficult. That is a tough song to play, and that's a pretty damn tough song to play and sing to. Um, even on the bass for Kip. Maybe that's why he didn't play the bass on the video. It was just too hard. He's like, you know, screw it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But a very... But spun a, it around instead. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. But a very complex song musically. Um, Kind of a silly song lyrically. Probably not one you could get away with here in uh, 2020, but in 1988, it was kind of okay. You could get away with it. You just might get arrested. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The band wouldn't play it for many, many years. And Kip wouldn't play it on his solo shows. And, the you know, they kind of swore it off for a while. And then, you know, going back a while ago, I mean, I would say 10 plus years at least, the band just kind of said, screw it. Let's play it. And just sort of re-embrace this song. And I actually think they quite enjoy playing it. It's, it, it's a tough, 
you know, song to pull off. Um, so a lot of the people in the crowd are probably just pumping their fists because they, you know, they remember it from 1988. But if you actually watch what they're doing during this song in the breakdown and the guitar work by Reb and all those things into a really, really cool outro where they're just kind of letting it go. And Reb has that rather iconic, you know, tapping solo there at the end while, you know, Kip's just kind of letting her fly vocally. Some really cool stuff going on here on 17. Yeah, the breakdown and the guitar solo are both pretty epic for sure. Yeah, it, it's a song that has a lot of musical credibility and a, a rather unlikely hit. You know, I wonder if Atlantic Records, when they heard it, knew that they had a hit on their hands. Because 1988 was, it was kind of a strange time commercially. So it, it certainly worked. It's got the catchy chorus and everything. But to me, it, it's all about the, uh, to me, it's all about the vocal intro. Oh, I mean, th- yeah. This song has like one of the most ridiculous vocal intros <laughs> I've ever heard. And uh, I don't know. I'd love to hear you take a crack at it. Oh, oh. you know, I mean, I, I, I assume I'm doing this. Oh yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> of course you are. All right, all right, here we go. Oh man, this is some of the things work. you've made me do on this uh yeah, on this show. Yeah. I know. Payback's a bitch. All right, well let's <laughs> Yeah. What a what a great track. Remember, these are long lost old demos. These are old demos. So so I'm doing this? But Kip was really on. Oh yeah, you're doing this. Oh boy, here we go. Yeah! I saw Sparks fly from the corner. It's a little out of my range. It's a little out of my range. Just a little bit. But that, that you're, you're absolutely right. That first, I mean, that is just, oh, that is ridiculous. It's. I, mean, I would love to know what that note actually is. Like, <laughs> I, you know, it's like, a, I don't think it is a note, but the thing with Kip is, and he proves it live. I mean, he will sing that and it sounds beautiful. I mean, it sounds amazing. It's, it does not sound like he's yelling or screaming or pushing or any of those things you just heard me do. It, it is like, you know, he can, his range is really extraordinary. And you know, he's still to this day, there may be a couple songs where they go half step down, but to this day, he can still hit that stuff and do it, you know, meaningfully. Yeah. You go see them live nowadays and they're, they sort of still fire on all cylinders. I mean, there's no, I, in a lot of ways, they might be a better live band now than they were, you know, in the late eighties. So yeah, he, he's, he's a mammoth singer. I mean, the guy's just got a huge voice, but, but this will go down as one of the all time most mind-blowing uh, vocal intros, I would say. Well, I'm glad they didn't have me sing on stage with them. Um, we'll stick to bass as far as trying to pull off Kip Winger vocals. And while I take a drink of water, let's get to track four, Without the Night. Uh, 
I absolutely freaking adore this song. This is my favorite winger song by far. Paul Taylor co-wrote this and their second best song, which is basically the equivalent of without the night on their second album, which is a song called miles away, which is a pretty decent hit for the band was written solely by Paul Taylor. So this cat knew what he was doing as far as kicking out melodic, slow tempo songs for this band in particular. But without the night, it's powerful. In a collection of outstanding pre-choruses throughout this entire album, this one might be the best. The guitar work from Reb, sort of that long solo piece toward the end, and then to close it out because it basically fades on a Reb solo is outstanding guitar work. So this is, I think, their best song, certainly the best song on this album, and I think the band's best song. I'm not sure your thoughts on it. I'm interested. But I think uh, Without the Night is one of the better, you know, 80s ballads within this genre that, you know, really any band during that time put out, in my opinion. I echo its quality. You know, there's another slow song at the end of the album that, trumps it for me <laughs> yeah that one's pretty good too we'll get yeah to it. <laughs> yeah um but it, it shows the range you know it's it's sweeping it's dramatic kip sings his heart out and the instrumentation is you know once again it's it's showcasing this band's taste and their range so i know it's it's a very important song to you as it should be and yeah, it's clearly a highlight of the album, no doubt about it. And I agree with you. It's where Paul Taylor really shines. The band really feels very cohesive at this point during this song. And it caps off a, you know, a pretty solid, maybe more than solid, you know, kind of four song run to open the album. You know, if, if, if for only yeah. for things to sort of fall apart with a very ill-advised cover coming up. <laughs> I, I do think if you were to look at, um, you know, glam metal, hair metal, progressive metal of this era, it's probably as good of a four song run as you're going to get. And then um, maybe a little bit ill-advised, but, you know, at the time they felt like paying some homage to uh, Jimi Hendrix was worth their while to close out side one. And uh, they do so with Purple Haze. You know, it's um, it's highly unnecessary, and uh, you know the good thing if you had the cassette tape is you know you could just go ahead and fast forward there and start side two, <laughs> yeah, uh, and you know side B, flip the thing over. But I mean, look at you know they they put kind of an interesting twist on it, and they certainly you know provide a bit of an interpretation of it here, but probably would have liked to see them on this record with as strong as it is. Um, particularly coming off that four song run, maybe not have to do the cover song, but uh, I don't know, maybe of its time, it was something that made sense. Look, here we are right now. It's uh, September, 2020. We're living through this uh, pandemic, which is just full of nothing but rules and 
do this, don't do that. And, you know, we're all being told what to do. And, and that's what life looks like right now. Let me give you a, a rule. Okay. This is a two twins in an album rule. Okay. And I want everyone to take this just as seriously as all the rules that we've talked about all right. in the last several weeks and months. Okay. Okay. Don't cover Jimmy. Okay. Just don't cover Jimmy. It, it, don't do it. Can you hear Jimmy? Oh, I can hear Jimmy. Yeah. See, you listen. You listen, Jimmy. I can hear Jimmy. <laughs> don't cover Jimmy. It, it, it doesn't work. It really doesn't. Look at all these attempts to cover Jimi Hendrix songs. And they all fall completely flat. You know, King's X, a band that I love, decided on, you know, one of their great albums, Dogman, to put this really just kind of the cover of Manic Depression on it. Right, right. And it was like, it's one of my favorite bands. And it's like, what are you guys doing? Like, you can't do this. And there's been covers of Hey Joe, and there's been covers of, you know, Foxy Lady. And I mean, just don't cover Jimmy. Just don't do it. You know, there's only one Jimmy. I think you make a fine point. I still think you can't hear Jimmy, but. <laughs> I can hear Jimmy. <laughs> Let's flip the side here. State of emergency. There's a little bit of it, and you see this sometimes on albums, even really good albums, where there's sort of a relief song. There's sort of a, oh, okay, we're back. And I think State of Emergency is just that, you know, and it, and it kicks off side two nicely. I think it's a great song. Again, a really, really good pre-chorus, better than the chorus itself. And at the end, there's this really cool progression change where the backbone of the song completely changes to a totally different, more minor progression with the same vocal line on top of it and the same, you know, harmonizing and layering on top of it. And it's a really cool effect and very thoughtful. You did not see bands that are categorized in this genre doing stuff like that. Very, very musical. Paul Taylor assisted on the writing, which is also noteworthy. And it's one of those songs, you know, we have these from time to time where I'm just really interested in your thoughts of it. Cause it is a bit of an album track. What do you think of state of emergency here to kick off side two? Yeah, I love it. I, I, I agree with everything you said. Your whole take on it is strong. Winger had a few kind of musical motifs that they would go to. And one of them was to do things with outros that would be considered unconventional. You know, they would end outros with long guitar solos. They would have yeah. major key changes and tempo changes. Yeah. They so do. you're really focused a lot on their pre-choruses. And I get why, because, you know, this album and every Winger album featured those. But they also ended songs in really unconventional ways. And State of Emergency is a, a really, you know, strong example of that. You know, great rhythm guitar. Again, you know, it, Red Beach is really known for his lead playing, but, you know, really, really rock solid just on the nuggets rhythm guitarist, you know, guy never misses. So yeah, it, great kickoff to side two, you know, a, a side two that maybe didn't have the hit power that side one did, but, but has um, 
an equal amount, if not maybe even a little more of the musicality. Yeah, you make a great point on Reb. You know, a lot of people think of him for the shredding and the tapping and a lot of those things that are really part of his lead sound, but he's really got good feel. You know, he could play rhythm just as good. And, and oftentimes you don't see that. You don't see guys that can really accomplish both. You know, Angus Young can solo, you know, till there's no tomorrow. But there's a reason Malcolm was so important to that band. He had to carry the load as far as that percussive rhythm nature that provided that guitar chop and there Metallica, are a of, great example too. Kirk Hammett can't play rhythm for, you know, to save his life. And James Hetfield is one of the best rhythm guitarists of all time. No question. Reb beach can really do both. And I think that that's actually a pretty unique skill set to be able to play at that high of a level in, in both regards. So just precise, like everything about Reb is yeah precise just right on the screws you know the guy is just so freakishly talented love watching him play yeah exactly right let's go to track seven time to surrender Pretty cool. I mean, it's a song that obviously, you know, you feel like you're in the 80s um, pretty strongly. Whereas with some of these others, I think they, you know, age rather gracefully. This is probably one that doesn't age as well, but there's still a lot of cool guitar chop going on, a, a cool riff, um, another great pre chorus, which is probably the best part of the song. Again, better than the chorus itself. It's okay. I, I think uh, obviously it's the track that precedes it kicks off side two nicely and this kind of you know brings it down a little bit and maybe a song that doesn't age as well as some of the others but you know it's not bad a lot of 80s moves in this song so yeah just kind of a reminder hey we're still in 1988 right and uh, as if the 17 video is not enough to remind you of that you know we're still riding that glam metal i mean this is a song that sounds the most like everything else that was going on at the time you know, you could probably find this on like a rat album or something like that. So yeah, it doesn't stand out like the others. Uh, Still great playing, you know, and a lot of interesting things to hear in the song, but yeah, not a favorite. And I think that that continues here, probably kind of the weak point of the album here, that track. And then the next one, which kind of does feel again, like you're a little bit outdated here as far as a late eighties, sort of glam metal approach. And I think you get that again here on poison angel. It's a, obviously a very upbeat song and there's some great rub. I mean, if you're just looking for, I mean, there's almost kind of a, you know, sort of Satriani type feel to this where, I mean, if you're looking for impressive guitar work and speed and all those things, um, you know, Poison Angel's not bad, Um, but it's certainly one of those, you know, up-tempo, very 80s songs. You know, I don't love it. There's some cool licks in there. And and again, if you really want to get an appreciation for how good and how quick Reb is, uh, it's a good thing to visit. But all in all, not, you know, not a strong part of the record. You chose the right clip because it does have a, you know, a pretty wow type of red beach guitar solo in it, but you know, there's no depth to poison angel. And the thing about winger that always gave them 
kind of the distinguished aspect of their musicianship against their peers was a certain level of depth, you know, and it doesn't mean that an up-tempo song automatically doesn't have depth in it. Not at all. Madeline proves it earlier, but uh, this song just lacks a certain amount of, you know, um, fascination to it. Right. It it just kind of comes and goes. And yes, it's got this kind of wild guitar solo to it, but this song really does lack the, the depth that winger would prove really to be their greatest strength as a band, uh, not just on this album, but the subsequent albums as well. I would agree. Track nine, another song where you just sound like a broken record here. The pre-chorus really drives it hanging on. track you know it's got I, I think it's got everything that you're looking for it's got that groove it's got that rhythm chop playing um it's got that great vocal good harmonies so you know obviously um a little bit of a setup song as far as what comes next and what closes out the album but it's pretty good i think after the previous two you get back kind of revved up a little bit here and ready for the closer this is probably just outside my top five winger songs of all time. Oh, cool. Yeah, lo- lo- always loved hanging on. It's got a dynamic opening riff, but I love the guitar playing in the chorus. You know, you, you're again, pre-chorus, I get it. Yeah. But this to me is the best chorus on the album, just overall, because of what the dual guitars are doing during it. And uh, just the way the guitar kind of sneaks up near the end of the vocals in the chorus. I mean, it just... I think hanging on comes along at a really important time of the album. Maybe right when you start to check out a little bit or feel like it's going into a cliche, this song really steps up the composition back to a high quality level and, and then sets up the big finish. That's great to hear. Great. That that's one of the, one of your top winger tunes. And I think we can all agree that what you get at the end here, track 10, the final track of the album is just damn special here with headed for a heartbreak. Man, this is a beautiful song. It, it, and you know what? It it ages incredibly well. You know, so just the opposite of, you know, sort of towards the middle there of side two, you start to get into something that really feels of its time. This song probably ages as well as not just any winger song, but any 80s, you know, power ballad type uh, number, if you will. Incredible layering beautiful progressions i mean you can really get a sense and kip wrote this song all by himself this is i think the only one on the album that's all kip from a composition standpoint and when you really piece it together it's not surprising there there are a lot of elements a lot of progressions and a lot of feel throughout this and it's sort of sweeping nature that is very symphonic and very classical and you can get a sense for that with a lot of these 
layering melodies taking place with the layering guitar part underneath that long solo at the end, you know, the, the, don't you think I feel the pain section that transitions sort of that last chorus into that long solo at the end is just chilling. I mean, it's just fantastic. Um, what a way to close this album with a song that in my opinion is timeless and one that, uh, I think gets more appreciated as uh, as the years go on by many it's one of the best compositions of the 80s and seeing this song live makes you really appreciate it you know kip plays keyboards when they play this song live and you can really see him owning the composition of it uh, when you see him singing and, and playing along on the keyboards you know i think in one of the earlier podcasts we talked about the dolly parton rule you know i'm going to bring that back for this one What's a great song? Oh, yeah. The Dolly. Well, it was the Dolly Willie uh, rule, I believe, wasn't it? Exactly. Yeah. And so like, so the Dolly Willie rule says that if a song is truly great, then you will love it if Dolly Parton does a cover of it, and you will love it if Willie Nelson does a cover of it. Think about Headed for a Heartbreak. It, it is one of those compositions that, you know, just about any genre could cover this song and have it be a hit or at the very least have it sort of be beloved. It just has that it factor to it, but it's because of the way that all these really complex musical sections blended to one another. You know, there's nothing simple about the song. There really isn't. It's doing a lot of things rhythmically that are challenging and a vocal line that yes, it's sentimental, but it's also musically very demanding. This is not an easy song to sing at all. No question. And so the band is challenging themselves within the format of a, a ballad or a love song or whatever you want to call it. And then, of course, you get this magnificent guitar solo to, to kind of pace things along. So if this band truly got a fair shake, if Winger actually would have gotten, you know, true justice from the music business, this song would have been a gigantic hit. And it wasn't. It was a moderate hit for the band. It did okay. but. Um, you know, this, this, should have, this should be one of those songs that people still cover today. But instead, it's just one that you and I can continue to enjoy. And, and presumably many others that have continued to follow this band. Yeah, I think it's one that's, that's still appreciated and certainly one that wraps up this debut album from Winger. So, Nubs, did this album matter? I don't think this album mattered because it didn't propel the band to the level that it deserved and that it should have been at. There are some shortcomings to the album. You know, there's some, there's some things in it that kept the band in that eighties rock box, as opposed to what winger should have been, which was this band that really kind of blew everybody's mind by not being anything like their peers. When they were at their best, they were that, but when they were at their, their worst is when they, just fell in line. And this album has a little bit too much of that to really last. There's things on it that truly do matter, but you got to put the time in to, to learn about the band and to get over the, the Beavis and Butted image and to understand Kip and what kind of artist he is. And, you know, for anybody who takes the time and makes the investment to do that, of course, you're going to value this album. But in terms of any kind of mainstream notoriety or things like that. Um, no, I would say that this debut album is in the, it did not matter category. And I would say the pull album is in the, 
should have mattered category <laughs> because to me that's the band's true masterpiece. I just I think that's a such a complete and just you know an album that should be treasured. What do you think, T? Does it matter? Well, I I don't have a great way to source this, but I gotta think that there's an element of this that does. I'm I'm mostly with you. I think it you know should more than it does, but there had to be an element of this record that forced some of the others within this genre to step up their game. There had to be, you know, there's no way that some of these other producers or other bands that could be folded under this glam metal or even this proggy metal genre. There's no way you can't listen to this in 1988 and think we better sharpen our game a little bit, you know, and you did see, a little bit more experimentation start to come in the very late 80s from some of these rock bands. You know, you did start to see this metal genre become a little bit more progressive and a little bit more melodic in those things. And I do think this record helped that. Now, I don't know that it was terribly influential on the industry or on this genre or that many would admit so, but I got to think even looking back at the time that it probably didn't matter as much as it should have or could have, but there had to be an element to this where it, you know, forced at least some within the genre to kind of step up their game a little bit due to kind of the proggy complex nature of some of this stuff. So the final cut nubs, is it on the turntable in the collection collecting dust or sad times in the first sale? bin? <laughs> what do you got, buddy? Well, look, anything with headed for a heartbreak and without the night, no way that's going in the sale bin, right? So we could just get that idea right off the table. But as an album is collecting dust, um, it's strong. It's got a really strong opening. It's got a great first uh, four track run. And as noted that the ending is, you know, it, it really caps with a high point with hanging on and headed for a heartbreak, but a little too much nonsense in the middle the Hendrix cover that shouldn't be. And then just some of the more kind of eighties cliched elements, but you know, pretty extraordinary bookends to the album. So as an album would be collecting dust. And of course there's elements on here that I listen to very regularly, uh, but I would encourage anybody to dig it out and appreciate it. Not just this album, but the whole winger catalog and, and maybe use this as the starting point just so you can see the story. But uh, yeah, for me, it's collecting dust. T, what's the final cut for you? I'm going in the collection and, you know, I, I so totally get, you know, that, that take, um, and certainly there are holes in this album, but you know what? The high points are just so high. Yeah. I mean, are. the first yeah. four songs and state of emergency and the closer, I mean, it's like, boy, that's, there's some, I mean, there's some really, really good stuff there that. Uh, at a glance, you, you you could certainly go. I mean, I could easily go collecting dust on this, but the strong points are just so damn strong that it really carries it forward uh, into the collection for me. So yeah, yeah, that's you know that's again good points. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and again, a record that um, I got to think you know forced at least some others to take notice. Uh, some really thoughtful, progressive, complex stuff going on here. That may have been above the heads of some that were purchasing it because they thought it was all going to sound like 17 or whatever. But all in all, I mean, those handful of high points from this 10 track album and half of it is really, really good. 
it's going in the collection for me. So let's close things out and cool things down. Let's cool our jets a little bit here. Cool the jets. Cool the jets with a little bit of in your head. One more time. That wasn't enough. All right, Nubs, what's in your head, man? Well, I would say my favorite song to start with, which of course would be New Mistake by Jellyfish. Ah, yeah. Off the Spilt Milk. Great song. Great album. Probably my favorite Jellyfish song, I would say. It's a good one. Talk about a great outro, right? Come on. Yeah. Um, The album is Dosage by Collective Soul, easily the band's best album. And the song would be Compliment, kind of a second half gem from collective souls finest hour which is the dosage album one of the early 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 examples of pro tools on an album there in the late 90s you got it yeah exactly kind of a pioneering effort in that you can hear it too it's very digital very digital and uh the other one would be kind of an obscure peter frampton song from the 90s which is day in the sun which maybe had a day in the yeah. sun of some brief radio play in Detroit radio and it kicked mm-hmm. off, but actually it's kind of an underrated Frampton album and a uh, cool opener. And, and as a song that, uh, yeah, maybe we were fortunate to have such good radio in Detroit just to even discover a song like that. But uh, Peter Frampton day in the sun. It's great. A great, great chorus. All right. T what is in your head? I've got a song called dust and bones, which is by a band called Night Terrors of 1927, kind of a weird band name. Uh, I'm not sure if this is a band that's even around anymore. It's probably, you could probably put it in the festival rock genre, Um, but Dust and Bones is a really good track. I even think it's one that you would like, Nubs. Um, Really good layering. It's almost uh, in the spirit of some of like the 30 Seconds to Mars type stuff that you hear with a lot of uh, vocal layering and elements and, and a really cool jam uh, from, you know, going back probably five, six years ago. The second is uh, a uh, early nineties delight off an EP called broken that had a very cool flaming orange album cover with a large N on it. And a flip cardboard sleeve and a flip cardboard sleeve. You got it. And this is track two called wish which was actually the song that got me into Nine Inch Nails. I, I wasn't even during Head Like a Hole and all that stuff. I still wasn't down yet. But uh, but Wish is the one that really uh, got me hooked on on the great Trent Reznor and the great Nine Inch Nails off of what, that broken EP. One of my favorite early TOEF four track <laughs> yeah recordings was <laughs> your version of Wish. It's it incredible. You remember, right? Oh, yeah. It was just so terrible. So terrible. Um, You know, I was playing the snare drum doing that, like, you know, marching beat. And yeah, you had to use one of the four tracks to do the, you know, that part. (laughs) (laughs) It's a great call. I forgot that that was one of my uh, early awful four track efforts. (laughs) Love it. And then the third song is a band that uh, that Nubs brought to us uh, a few episodes ago. from our neighbors to the north, Our Lady Peace. And this is the song called Angels Losing Sleep. Angels backslash losing backslash sleep is the actual grammatical way that the song is stylized. Yeah, proof that the band eventually did get way up its own ass. They did. And, and you know, this album, this was that um, 
this was another Bob Rock album. I think the one after Gravity that this uh, song was on, if I'm not mistaken. But this was the opening track, and it's a really, really good song. Great Our Lady Peace jam. And the album kind of tails off from there. But Angels Losing Sleep is a great song by that, by that great band. Back when they were still making relatively decent albums. So Relatively. Yeah, exactly. So that's what's in my head. Nubs, what a great uh, band to talk about. It's a band that we've talked about for uh, decades at this point, And we've tried to convince anybody that would listen to us how accomplished and talented and really incredible these guys are musically. And we've uh, been able to convert a few along the way, but really, uh, really enjoyed talking about this debut record with you. Listen, two very simple takeaways today, right, T? One, go buy winger albums, right? Get into this band. This is an absolutely fantastic band. Get into them. Two, don't cover Jimmy. Don't cover Jimmy. Don't do it. <laughs> I, I couldn't agree more. And we just have one more thing to say to you. I'm going to give this one more try. Oh, yes. <clears throat> These are actual winger demos. Actual winger demos. Dug up from the winger basement. Here we go. Yeah, I saw sparks fly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think you nailed it. It was just as bad as the previous two. No, no, I think that was the best one yet. Slight improvement. I I think so. Uh, The bar was low. The bar was low. (laughs) Hey, uh, that's a wrap on episode 15, and we will see you uh, very soon for our next episode. Um, where we may have a little sp- something special going on. So uh, make sure to tune in when we bring you episode 16 up next here on Two Twins and an album. Take care. Two Twins Well, that's about it. That's all we have. I hope it wasn't too disappointing. We will see you on tour. Until then, take it easy.